Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to stay close to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, bad stuff happens to good people as much as it happens to everyone else. Uh, Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which was just his way of letting us know that because we go to church, our yard is not going to be greener than our neighbor who doesn't go to church. Most of us want there to be a noticeable difference between the not-believers and us believers. And we think it should be something like well, us driving better cars, living in nicer homes, having a better job, or better yet, not having to have a job at all because Jesus made us rich. And there, well, there are churches that teach that. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said the world should know we are believers because of the way that we love one another. I get it. We want to be able to point to something tangible in our life as proof that we know Jesus and, more importantly, Jesus knows us. Maybe like, you know, a Costco membership card, except it says Jesus membership. Or, you know, maybe like, you know, the Kamehameha school sticker, but it would say Jesus private club. So when Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, we're like, okay, Jesus, couldn't you at least get us matching T-shirts? God doesn't feel the need to explain why he hasn't given us ID cards or engraved a giant cross on our forehead where we got baptized. And he feels very comfortable letting us figure out how we're going to love the world because there's an unlimited number of ways to love people. And so it really shouldn't be that hard for us. But it would be easier if we could just run around with a tattoo, an ID card, or, you know, something that said, I belong to Jesus, he said so. Our parable today is a little intense. It doesn't take much to figure out God is the king, the wedding banquet is heaven, and all of humanity are the invited guests. And while the Pharisees and Sadducees are the people who reject God's invitation in the parable, most of us know, well, we know some people who have rejected God's invitation, and sometimes we even know why they did. There are those who are loud and angry in their opposition to God. Richard Dawkins, George Carlin, Ricky Gervais, Karl Marx, Penn and Gillette, there are those who are far quieter in their unbelief, like Catherine Hepburn, Mark Zuckerberg, and Billy Joel, who have made statements about them not believing in God to various social media outlets and newspapers. Some people have very clear reasons for not believing. Some are very, very angry at the God that they don't believe in. Others just don't see how any of it's possible. You know, the whole heaven and hell and angels and God thing, and so... They've just become content with this world and this life, whatever it may be. And so when Jesus tells the parable and talks about the people who were not only no-shows at the wedding, but who worked to destroy the wedding feast itself, we may or may not have a problem with God going to war against them. But we recognize that they were the ones who declared war on God, and God was forced to respond. Such graphic events are not easy for us to balance with our view of a loving, saving God. But we know in the end, those who choose evil, well, they have to answer for their deeds. Where most of us struggle is the one who gets caught without the official wedding garment. These are they who aren't so much against God, but neither are they for God. It's like the tea in Revelation chapter 3, where it's neither hot nor cold, so God spews it out of his mouth. Almost all of us have friends and relatives in this group. They may even call themselves agnostics, or, or they just may work to avoid anything religious. They aren't dangerous so much as they are just apathetic. 
And while we recognize God won't force them to accept something they don't want or accept or believe something they don't want to believe, it's not our party. And so all we can do is pray. It hurts because we know that heaven won't be the same without them. And even though when we get to heaven we won't necessarily know they are missing, we know it now. And it hurts. And besides, even if we won't necessarily know that they're missing in heaven, God will. And, well, if God's hurting, then that hurts us. Quick rabbit hole. See, back then, since people had to travel really, really long distances to weddings and there weren't any fancy cruise ships or, uh, you know, one of those special trains or airplanes so that you could arrive immediately refreshed, having been, you know, just pampered the whole way, Well, when the guests arrived, they were dusty and they were tired and they were hungry. And so it was customary for the host to have someone wash their feet. And and it included a nice fragrant oil being rubbed all over their feet. And then he provided a new set of clothes and a swag bag with everything they needed to freshen up and to feel important. Oh, and by the way, the richer the host, the better the swag bag and the more exclusive the designer clothes. This is how the host knew the person didn't belong at the wedding. Their clothes didn't match everyone else's. Metaphorically, one group at the wedding church said, I'm a friend of the groom. The rest of them said, I'm a friend of the bride. And, well, this person, it's just said, I'm a friend of me. Normally, I'm all for individualism. After all, I wear cowboy boots when almost everybody around me wears rubber slippers. But in this case, where everything is about the wedding and the bride and the groom, it's not just in bad taste. It's an insult to both of the families, and especially the host. The parable continues with the host having the one wearing the offensive t-shirt bound hand and foot and cast out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is where the parable turns a little dark. And by the way, it goes from metaphorical to theological in its nature, since it's doubtful the sun stopped shining just outside the castle where the king lived. So we're pretty sure Jesus is making it clear this individual is being cast into the darkness of hell. It is also here where the metaphors get mixed. Like when someone says, well, the substitute teacher screamed her hair out, but the kids still didn't listen. Or when the going gets tough, the early bird gets the worm. Or, you know, this is hardly rocket surgery. Well, Jesus is telling the story of the book of Revelation and what will happen on that last day when he returns to take his bride, which, by the way, is us, Uh, home to heaven for the marriage feast, and those who have rejected God get left behind, there is a parallel story being told which helps us understand and accept both the violence and the painful nature of this parable. The people Jesus was telling the parable to were not strangers, to upheaval and turmoil, moody kings starting wars, destroying cities, and enslaving people. It's happening right now in the headlines. From where they were standing, they could probably see Roman soldiers, a reminder that they were conquered people, and the bloody crosses that stood outside the city, often with men and women nailed to them, dying horrible deaths. Some who were violent criminals, and so people said, well, we understand, but others who simply disagreed with the wrong person. It kept this nation living in a state of fear. Into this fullness of time, God sends his son, not as a conquering soldier, but as a sacrificial lamb. But the church leaders, not all of them, but enough of them, have decided they don't like God's plan, and they set, well, they set about sabotaging God's rescue mission. They may not burn cities, but in a very real way, they war against the true people of God, you know, the ones who live by faith, 
who desire nothing more than for God to send the promised Messiah so that they can finally live in the promised peace that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and then to Moses and Abraham and Elijah and all the other prophets. Now, this religious elite questions how prostitutes and tax collectors could possibly be saved because they don't deserve to. They were angry Jesus healed someone who had been in pain their entire life, and they were angry because Jesus healed this person on the Sabbath day, and they were like, look, you should have just waited one more day because there are rules, you know. They tried to run Jesus off a cliff. They were ready to condemn and stone a woman who was caught being unfaithful, and yet they let the man go as an innocent bystander. When Jesus becomes a threat because the crowds, which included fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, the blind, the deaf, the formerly dead, because they're all following him, the elite decide they've got to get rid of Jesus. After all, he's not wearing the appropriate t-shirt that says, friend of me. Instead, Jesus is wearing one that says, friend of God. Hmm. They bind Jesus hand and foot, cast him into the darkness, which is the cross, expecting there to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it is out of the darkness that hope and forgiveness and salvation burst. The day of darkness turns into a morning of blinding light. And instead of weeping and gnashing of teeth, for those who had been waiting since creation's fall, there were tears of joy and sighs of relief. Here is where the two stories merge back into a single story. The religious elite thought they could create their own kingdom, forgetting that they were dealing with God. See, it's one thing if they'd been dealing with the Romans. They would have at least stood a chance of their rebellion. But fighting against God? I don't think so. And if you're wondering where the whole the king burned their city to the ground comes from, it does sound a little extreme, but then we go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved in the earth, and the works on it will be disclosed. The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, we will wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. The religious elite were trying to create a heaven on earth. But this world, this universe, is corrupted by sin. In fact, it's slowly coming apart at the seams. Colossians 1.17 reminds us that it's only Jesus that's holding it together. And if he lets go, it'll go flying apart. No matter how hard anyone tries to preserve this world, they can't. It's why we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth that will not be torn apart by sin, where we get to dwell in wholeness and peace and love and well, all those other things that this world is missing. So a quick aside. A long time ago when I was a vicar, I took our youth group to a haunted house. This wasn't just any haunted house. This one was especially scary because it was the Winchester Mystery House. Yeah, the heir to the Winchester fortune. And anyway, if you get a chance, read her story because she was told by a medium that if she had construction going 24 hours a day on the house, she would never die. Well, she had construction going 24 hours a day and she still died. But anyway, and there's all these rumors that ghosts are still there. Anyway, one of the senior high kids brought their little sister. It became way too intense for her, and she needed to get out. And I don't mean by going through the rest of the haunted house. There were two zombies in the room that we were in, one that was popping up out of a coffin. 
I asked the zombie where the exit was, and since the little girl was screaming her head off, not so much out of fear, but anxiety, and the zombie understood this, the zombie broke character for just one second and pointed to a wall where I could see there was a door. Let outside, we took the little girl out, and she was quickly saved from all the scariness. The wedding banquet is God's way of pointing everyone to the exit, where they will leave behind the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the pain and loss and death and disease and hurt of this world, and enter into an eternal banquet where there is only peace and joy. In other words, in the midst of all of this scariness, God's saying, right over there is what you've been waiting for. Now, with the city burned down, one would assume those whom the servants gathered for the feast would be of one mind, one soul, and one heart. But while everyone should be wearing the matching t-shirts provided by the king, there is one who is not. Now, the king calls him friend, giving him the benefit of the doubt and says, how'd you get in here? Expecting an answer. But when the particular guest cannot explain why he is there, the king orders him bound hand and foot, cast into the darkness where there is, yep, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think you see the theme going on here. And by the way, all this individual had to say was, I'm here out of faith. And so when he is speechless, we have to assume that he really didn't have any faith. Now again, if we know our Bible, this has already been explained. In Matthew 25, there are those who thought it was enough to just run around pretending to be believers, using the right language, doing the right things, wearing maybe a shirt that said, I belong to Jesus. And yet, in truth, they did not believe. And by the way, we're not the ones who get to determine whether they believe or not. That, that's a God thing and a God thing only. And when Jesus doesn't let them into heaven, they say, well, when did we see you hungry and naked and in prison and in need? And Jesus says, insofar as the least of these needed you, I needed you. Matching t-shirts are nice, but Jesus wants us to live out our faith for the world to see and more importantly, for the world to experience because us living our life of faith that's the greatest gospel that there ever will be. Not one of perfection, but one of grace. Jesus wants us to live that out, not just run around telling everyone we have faith. As St. James said, you know, faith without works is dead. So if we just tell everyone we have faith, they're not going to be able to understand what faith really is. And here's the part of the parable that brings everything into focus. Jesus, the one thrown out by the religious elite, is also the crucified and risen one. The paradoxes of accountability and forgiveness, justice and freedom, past, present, and future, shame and wholeness, guilt and repentance, perpetrator and victim, they all collide in the cross of Christ. This is the mystery of faith that reaches out to claim us in a broken world, reaches into the valley of the shadow of death where there is, yep, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and draws us into a life of love and wholeness in the here and now, but which also and finally bestows on us the eternity with Jesus, where we will forever sing a grateful hallelujah. As uncomfortable as this parable is, it's in line with everything that God has told us since the beginning of time. If there is to be any comfort, it is that no one will be lost or cast into the darkness who hasn't chosen it. We either believe in a God who knows the hearts and souls of his people, or we don't. And if we don't, we probably need to spend a little more time reading about God and who he is and what he's done for us. See, it doesn't mean we don't struggle with such teachings, but that in and of itself is an act of faith as we strive to grow closer to the heart of God. 
What the parable finally and importantly declares is that God makes himself known to each of us. Heaven will not be the same without everyone ever born. And yet, not everyone is going to be there. It is a sad reality. For those of us who will, it is not our doing or our right works or our right beliefs, but rather somewhere in the telling of the story, we became so enmeshed in the telling that we didn't just become part of the story, we actually became the story. We found ourselves gathered up by the servants of God and brought to the banquet hall where, ah, you know, they bestowed on us the most beautiful clothes of righteousness, washed and anointed our feet with oil, set before us a feast that was beyond anything that Las Vegas ever imagined. And together we celebrated the wedding of God and his people. We knew together we didn't deserve any of this. And somewhere deep in our soul there came a feeling that it was the way it was supposed to be. And yet was not. But finally is, thanks to God's love. Because God never gave up on us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.